The following message was recorded at Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. More information can be found online at Bethlehem.Church. Well, it is a joy to be with you this morning. As Josh mentioned, my name is Brian Lichty, and I serve uh, here as the pastor for care and counseling. And whether you are here this morning uh, in the sanctuary or in the overflow or via live stream, uh, we are so glad that you've joined us today uh, to worship the Lord and to hear from his word. And for those of you who were with us last week, uh, you know we started a short series through the book of Habakkuk, a book that likely dates back to 605 B.C. And last week as we looked at chapter 1, we saw this amazing dialogue between Habakkuk and God. Chapter 1 started with Habakkuk asking God why he wasn't doing anything about all the sin and injustice that was taking place within Judah. And of course, God responded by saying, I am doing something. In fact, I'm going to raise up the Chaldeans, the Babylonians, and they're going to be my instruments. They're actually going to come in and judge Judah. Well, as we saw, God's answer was extremely troubling for Habakkuk. You see, Habakkuk knew that uh, Judah's sin needed to be punished. He knew that God is a holy God, and that's what justice requires. But what he didn't understand was why God would use the Babylonians. After all, they're much more wicked than those within Judah. So essentially, Habakkuk was struggling to reconcile God's character with his actions. He was struggling to reconcile how a just God could allow such injustice. That's why in verse 13 he said, You who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you look idly at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? Again, Habakkuk wanted to know how such a just and holy God could allow such injustice. And in many ways, that's a question that I think all of us struggle with at times. Uh, Many of us struggle uh, simply as we look out and see injustice throughout the world. You know, we live in a world where human trafficking and racism and economic oppression are rampant. We live in a world where genocidal dictators and corrupt politicians and sexual predators often go unpunished. Others of us, so I think, wrestle with this question not simply because of injustices we see in the world, but because of injustices and evil that we've experienced in our own lives. I'm guessing there's some of you here this morning who've lost your job in recent months, and that's after working faithfully for years. And so you might be wondering, how can this be? This just doesn't seem right. Others of you possibly were assaulted or somehow taken advantage of Uh, when you were younger. And so you may be wondering something like, will I ever get these lost years back? Uh, Will will, will that person who did this crime against me, will they ever be punished? And yet others of you have been victims to things like domestic abuse. And you may be thinking, are they going to get away with this? I mean, I, I know the cops can't do anything at this point, but will someone hold them accountable? Brothers and sisters, at some point, we all wrestle with Habakkuk's question. We all wrestle 
with how such a just and holy God could allow such injustice. And thankfully, God has an answer, not just for Habakkuk, but for all of us. And that's what we find this morning as we turn to chapter 2. In chapter 2, verses 2 through 20, God answers Habakkuk by doing three things. First, God tells Habakkuk to write down a vision that he is about to give. Second, God encourages the righteous to live by faith until this vision is fulfilled. And third, God shares his vision with Habakkuk. So let's look at each of these in turn. Beginning in verses 2 through 3, God tells Habakkuk to write down an important vision that he is about to give. Now, the word vision here often refers to a prophetic message or a revelation. In other words, God had an important word that he wanted to share with Habakkuk. In fact, it's so important that he wants it to write it down and make it plain on tablets. In other words, God wants him to make this message legible and clear. And God says the reason he wants that is so that he may run who reads it. That's kind of an odd phrase, right? We don't hear that every day. He may run who reads it. What does that mean? Well, this person could refer to someone who's running. Uh, they They have this message. They're a messenger, and they're running to go to different towns and cities and distribute the message. Almost like a a modern-day politician, right, who makes the um, kind of the rally circuit and goes around and shares the message and proclaims uh, what he wants his hearers to hear. It's also possible, though, that the one who's running here is actually the one reading the message. And if that's the case, it's sort of similar to what happens when you drive by uh, someone who's advertising through a sandwich board. Uh, You've seen those, right, where those people wear those big signs and they say things like, you know, so-and-so store, going out of business, or 50% off, one day only. Well, even though you're driving by them, or running by them, as it were, their message is so clear, it's so legible, that you can see it. So which is it here in verse 2? Is it the politician, or the person going past the sandwich board? To be honest, I don't know. Uh, we, I don't know for certain. But either way, I think God's point is the same. God wants Habakkuk to write down this vision and make it plain because he wants it to be heard by others. He wants it to be distributed. He wants it to go public. He wants Habakkuk and his contemporaries, and yes, even us, to read and to receive this message. But there's something else important that God wants Habakkuk to know about this vision before he writes it down. Look at verse 3. God says, For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. In other words, this prophetic message that God is about to give is for a future time. It's for a time that God has appointed. So it's not going to happen right away. It won't be immediately fulfilled. But it will happen. There is a day that's coming when it will take place. God guarantees it. It will take place according to the timetable he has set. That brings up an important question. 
What are Habakkuk and the righteous supposed to do while they wait on that vision to come and to be fulfilled? What are they supposed to do while they wait for that vision to pass? Well, that leads us to our next point. Next, in verses 4 through 5, we see that God encourages the righteous to live by faith until that vision is fulfilled. Again, verses 4 and 5, God encourages the righteous to live by faith until that vision is fulfilled. Look with me again at verses 4 and 5. It says, Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by his faith. Moreover, wine is a traitor, an arrogant man who is never at rest. His greed is as wide as Sheol, like death, he never has enough. He gathers for himself all nations and collects as his own all peoples. So who is this person? Who's this one whose soul is puffed up, whose greed is as wide as Sheol, who gathers for himself all these nations? Well, given our context, this certainly refers to Babylon. After all, we know from chapter 1 that God raised them up to go and conquer nations, including Judah. And in time, that's exactly what happened. But I also think these verses address people or nations who are like Babylon people or nations who are evil and sinful and rebellious and wicked. It's one of the reasons why God uses general pronouns in these verses rather than addressing Babylon directly. God uses the language of he and him and his because these verses really apply to anyone who is wicked. All right, well, what about the the righteous person who's mentioned there in verse 4? Who is that referring to? Is that referring to Habakkuk? Is that referring to um, those within Judah who had concerns like Habakkuk? Is that, is that uh, maybe referring to believers today, Christians who are part of the church? Well, I would say yes. I would say it refers to anyone that God has declared righteous. Again, that's why I think God uses general language here. And as we know, God doesn't declare us righteous because of anything we've done. We just sang about that a few minutes ago. There's nothing in our hands we bring, right? There's no amount of work we can do. It's not that we're somehow good enough that he declares us righteous. He declares us righteous because he's a gracious God. He declares us righteous because he's chosen to have a relationship with us. So to summarize, we could say that verses 4 and 5 are addressing two categories of people, the wicked and the righteous. The wicked includes the Babylonians and all those who would follow in their footsteps. The righteous includes Habakkuk and all those God graciously declares to be righteous. But there's something else we need to see in these verses. Not only do verses 4 and 5 address the wicked and righteous, they actually contrast the way they live. Notice that the wicked are characterized by pride. That's why it talks about their soul being puffed up. In other words, they're arrogant. They're full of themselves. They're constantly focused on themselves. In the case of the Babylonians, they were puffed up in their pride with things like their achievements, and their possessions, and their military power. 
And not only are the wicked's soul puffed up, they're also not upright. In other words, their souls are not in right relationship to God. They delight in things that God hates. They sadly trust in themselves rather than in God. A little over a year ago, my wife uh, started working in a grocery store. And as you can imagine, in the past few months, uh, she's seen quite a lot of people wearing masks, and a lot of those masks have messages on them. And some of those messages are pretty fun, right? They say things like, oofda, or you betcha, or my personal favorite, Dr. Fauci fan club. Others, though, are a little bit snarky. Some of those messages say things like, okay, boomer, or I may be wrong, but I doubt it. But some of those masks are actually sad, and they're disturbing with the messages they have on them. Uh, The other day, my wife saw a woman wearing a mask that said, my body, my choice. Now, whether this woman knows it or not, she's not just making a political statement. She's not just making a personal statement. She's actually making a prideful statement, a statement that offends a holy God who says, you belong to me. Instead, it's as if she's shaking her fist and saying, no, I belong to me. I can do whatever I want. I can think whatever I want. I don't have to answer to you, God. I only answer to me. Now, I don't know this woman. I've never met this woman. It's possible she just doesn't understand the message that her mask is communicating. But I do know what our text says. And it's a a warning, a severe warning to every single one of us. The souls of the wicked are puffed up. They are not right before God. The wicked are characterized by their pride. All right, so we know the wicked are characterized by pride. But what about the righteous? What are they characterized by? Well, according to verse 4, the righteous shall live by his faith. Now, when most of you hear that phrase, you automatically kind of jump to the New Testament, right? You think about Paul's words, maybe in Romans 1.17 or Galatians 3.11, where he quotes this verse. But it's important to understand that when Paul quotes this verse, he's using it to explain how a person is declared righteous in God's eyes. So he's using it to articulate the doctrine of justification, that despite our great sin, we can be declared righteous through faith in Christ. Well, here in Habakkuk, the emphasis isn't so much on how someone is declared righteous, but on how that person lives. So in verse 4, God's instructing the person who has already been declared righteous by faith to keep living by faith. In other words, he's saying, keep trusting in me regardless of what you see happening around you. He's saying, have confidence in me. I I will stay true to my character. He's saying, keep relying on my word and on all the promises that I've made. And of course, that fits within our context here, doesn't it? Remember, Habakkuk was crying out to God on behalf of the righteous. He was wrestling with how such a just God could allow such injustice. And God told him that an answer was coming. In fact, he said, write down this vision that's going to happen in a future time. And so, what is Habakkuk supposed to do? What are the righteous supposed to do until that vision is fulfilled? 
Well, they are to live by faith. They're to keep trusting God. They're to keep relying on his word. Unlike the wicked who pridefully trust in themselves, the righteous shall live by his faith. Well, third and finally this morning, let's look at verses 6 through 20. And in many ways, this is what our entire passage is kind of building up to. God began by telling Habakkuk to write down an important vision that he was about to give. And then he, uh, God encouraged the righteous to live by faith until this vision is fulfilled. And now in verses 6 to 20, God shares his vision. He shares a prophetic message, a revelation that he wants to be read and received by all generations. And his vision is a vision of coming judgment. So let's start looking at verse 6, where it says, Shall not all these take up their taunt against him with scoffing and riddles for him? The idea here is that a a day is coming when uh, nations and peoples who've been oppressed by Babylon are going to gather, and they are going to join together and mock them. And the way they're going to do that is by declaring five woes of judgment. And each judgment addresses a particular transgression or sin that the Babylonians have committed. Now, even though these woes address Babylon, uh, they apply beyond them. Again, I think they apply to all who are like Babylon, all who would follow in their footsteps, all who are wicked. Similar to what we saw earlier, God continues to use general pronouns in this section. He leaves the various parties unidentified. So, When we read these woes, again, we should read them as a warning. They're a warning to all who follow in the footsteps of Babylon, to all who walk in pride and rebellion, that a day is coming when justice will happen. A day is coming when they will face judgment for their sin. And so with that in mind, let's look briefly at each of these woes. First, in verses 6 through 8, we see a woe against the greedy— We see a woe against the greedy. Essentially, God is addressing those who acquire wealth and possessions. And of course, that's exactly what the Babylonians did. They would go in, they would conquer a nation, they would plunder them, and they would take all sorts of stolen goods and just gather them for themselves. They would keep acquiring and acquiring in a greedy fashion. But in this woe, God makes it clear that a day of judgment is coming. That will end. A day is coming when the nations that remain will rise up and condemn the Babylonians and take back what belongs to them. So the the image here is almost like creditors coming back to collect on what's owed them. That's what's going to happen. That's the picture here. That's the image that at the end of the day of judgment, those who've been plundered are going to plunder the Babylonians. So it's it's a picture of justice. It's a picture of Uh, The greedy getting what they deserve. The greedy will reap what they sow. Second, in verses 9 through 11, we see a woe of judgment against those with selfish ambition. And the picture here is of oppressors like the Babylonians who took land that wasn't there to build houses for themselves and empires for themselves. And much like a, a bird that kind of creates a nest far off, away from its enemies, that's what the Babylonians tried to do. They tried to build these houses that were safe and secure and out of reach. 
but God essentially says, you don't understand. You're, you're building yourself this house, and you think it's out of reach, but it's not secure. A day of judgment is coming. Rather than living out their days in safety and security, they will face God's judgment. Their fate is so clear, in fact, that the materials they use to build these houses actually testify against them. Again, a day of reckoning is coming. A day of judgment is coming when God will hold accountable all those with selfish ambition. Third, in verses 12 to 14, we see a woe of judgment against those who are violent. Notice in verse 12, it says, Woe to him who builds a town with blood and founds a city on iniquity. The, the, the problem in this woe is not so much that they were building houses. Uh, it's that they were building them through injustice. They were building them through violence. In all likelihood, the Babylonians were using slave labor. They were using prisoners of war in harsh ways to build these houses. But once again, God will not stand for this. He says in verse 13, Behold, is it not from the Lord of hosts that peoples labor merely for fire and nations weary themselves for nothing? So God's saying it's, it's just a matter of time before I'm going to raise up another superpower and they're going to conquer you, Babylon. It's just a matter of time before I'm going to raise up another nation and they're going to set fire to your houses like you did to others before them. So in the end, all of their labors, all of their efforts to build these houses will be in vain. As our text says, they weary themselves for nothing. Not only that, but as verse 14 shares, a day is coming when the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In other words, when these woes of judgment are fulfilled, something amazing is going to happen. The knowledge of God's glory is going to fill the earth. It's going to permeate and spread throughout the earth. And God's glory here refers to a really a powerful display of his character. Think about um, what happened with Moses in Exodus. God passed before him, and he announced that he was gracious and merciful and just. So he displayed his character in a powerful, awesome way. Well, what happened back in Exodus, that's going to happen even more so when these judgments are fulfilled. God's glory, his amazing, powerful, just character is going to be put on display for all to see. As these woes of judgment are fulfilled, the knowledge of God's holiness and righteousness and justice will be evident to all. But there's more. In verses 15 to 17, we see another woe. And this time it's a woe against those who exploit others and take advantage of them. That's what the text is referring to when it talks about oppressors making people drunk and gazing at their nakedness. The picture here is almost similar to what we might imagine uh, where a person goes into a bar and puts a, a drug in someone's drink and then takes advantage of them later that evening. The Babylonians took joy in demeaning others and in shaming their victims. But again, the Babylonians and those like them, they're going to get what they deserve. Because God is a holy God. Just as he revealed to Moses when he passed before him, he will by no means let the guilty 
go unpunished. So what does God do? He promises to shame them in the same way they shamed others. In fact, um, in the same way they gave their victims a cup to drink, he's going to give them a cup to drink. Only this cup won't be filled with wine. This cup is going to be filled with God's wrath. It's going to be filled with his, his holy and righteous anger against sin. Friends, make no mistake. These sins, these evils that the Babylonians committed and that others have committed, they not only offend their victims, they offend God. He's a holy God. He's a righteous God. And he hates all sin because it violates his character. It undermines his law. And so God is going to judge every form of wickedness, including, including those who exploit others and take advantage of them. Well, finally, in verses 18 through 20, we see a fifth woe of judgment against idolaters. And in many ways, this woe gets at the heart of not just Babylon's sin, but really all of our sin, right? The reason any of us go down a path of greed or selfish ambition or violence is because we've stopped pursuing God and we've chased after idols. And as you and I both know from our own sinful experience, an idol doesn't have to be made of stone or wood or metal. An idol can be something like comfort or achievement or pleasure or anything that we're more devoted to than God. But as God points out, at the end of the day, an idol is lifeless. It doesn't help. It can't satisfy. And it certainly won't save. God, on the other hand, is very much alive, isn't he? In fact, verse 20 says, The Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. In other words, God is ruling and reigning from his heavenly dwelling. So he and he alone deserves our worship. He and he alone deserves our allegiance. And at the end of the day, when these woes come to pass, everyone is going to recognize that reality. God's righteous rule, his just reign, will be so evident that all the earth will be silent before him. So let's think about our question from earlier. The question that Habakkuk asked and that we often asked, how can such a just God allow such injustice? Well, in verses 6 through 20, God has given his definitive answer. The answer is God won't let the Babylonians get away with what they're doing. He's going to judge them and all who follow in their footsteps. In other words, yes, God may use corrupt nations and people for his purposes, but at the last day, he will hold them accountable. That means every evil deed, every act of rebellion, every single instance of injustice will be punished. A day is coming when God will fully and finally and ultimately bring about justice. And when he does, the whole world will know it. So when will that happen? When exactly will these judgments occur? When will this vision come to pass? Well, like a lot of prophecy, I believe this one has layers of fulfillment. 
sort of like a, a plant in some way that grows over time. You know, it starts with a sprout, and then leaves start to form, and then soon you see buds, and, and then eventually, in time, it becomes a mature plant with flowers that are in full bloom. Well, I believe this, this first layer of fulfillment, or sprout, if you will, happened in 539 B.C., about 70 years after this book was written. That's when God raised up the Medes and the Persians to overthrow Babylon. And of course, it's through that judgment that the Israelites returned from exile. They went back to the promised land. They started to rebuild the temple. But as you and I know, greed, violence, selfish ambition, exploiting others, idolatry, those things have continued until this day. And so what has happened is at various times in history, God has brought additional layers of fulfillment. So for instance, I believe he brought a layer of fulfillment to this vision when the Roman Empire fell in 476 AD. I also believe he brought another layer of fulfillment to this vision when the Nazis and the Axis powers were defeated in World War II. And it may be that God is bringing another layer of fulfillment in our day to nations around us, or even to our nation. But one thing we know for certain is that at the end of history, this vision will reach its ultimate fulfillment. So this plant will eventually see full bloom. And it's going to see full bloom when God's very own son, Jesus, comes back at his second coming. On that day, God's righteous judgment will be revealed. On that day, every person will have to give an account for what they've done. And on that day, those who've been declared righteous by faith in Christ will receive eternal life. But those who haven't will receive eternal punishment. So friends, how do we respond to this vision that will be fulfilled when Jesus returns? Well, for those of you here this morning who are not Christians, those of you who have yet to turn from your sins and trust in Jesus, this is a very sobering message. It's sobering to hear how our sin is an affront to God. It's sobering to hear that because God is holy, that means our sin must be punished. And it's sobering to hear that a day of judgment is coming when we will all give an account but I want you to know there's hope. There is hope because of what Jesus did the first time that he came to this earth. You see, when Jesus came to the earth 2,000 years ago, he lived a perfect life. So unlike you and I, he never sinned. He never did anything that was unjust. And at the end of his life, he willingly died on the cross. And he did that in the place of sinners, taking the punishment their sins deserved. And then the Bible tells us that three days later, Jesus rose from the grave, demonstrating that he satisfied God's justice against their sin. Well, as we've just heard, one day he is going to return. He's going to come back to this earth, and he will judge the living and the dead. And when he does, all who've been trusted, all who've trusted in him, all who've been found righteous through Christ by faith will receive eternal life. 
But those who remain in their sin, those who continue to rebel, will receive eternal punishment. So if you're here today, and maybe you've been greedy or had selfish ambition or been violent, it's not too late. You don't have to face God's justice against your sin. You don't have to face the eternal punishment your sins deserve. If you trust in Jesus, all of your sins will be forgiven. You will be declared righteous in God's sight. And you will get to spend eternity knowing and enjoying and serving God. So trust in him. Trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins and the gift of eternal life. What about those of you who are here this morning who have already done that, who've already turned from your sins and trusted in Jesus? How should you respond? Well, I would encourage you with what we talked about earlier, that the righteous shall live by faith. As you and I know, uh, faith is not just how we begin the Christian life, it's how we continue in the Christian life. It's the way forward. So each and every day, we seek to walk by faith and not by sight. Each and every day, we seek to look to God and his word to fulfill all of his promises to us in Christ. And that includes the promises that are found in this vision. That a day is coming where God will judge, where justice will occur. So if you're here this morning and you're wrestling with injustices that are happening in the world, or you're wrestling with the evils and injustices that have happened to you, know that God will bring judgment. He's guaranteed it. He's promised it. He's prophesied it. God is a holy God, and he will not let sin go unpunished. He will provide perfect justice for every evil deed, whether at the cross or in hell. So you can trust God to settle every matter in his time. You can trust that God will make every wrong right. You can entrust yourself and your situation to the one who judges justly. So brothers and sisters, until he returns, let's fix our eyes on Jesus. After all, he's the founder and perfecter of our faith. He will help us, brothers and sisters. He will help the righteous to live by faith. Let's pray. God, we praise you this morning for who you are. You are a holy God. You are a righteous God. You are a just God. And part of what makes you so good and trustworthy is that you have a righteous standard that you hold us to. God, we praise you that even though we've fallen far below that righteous standard, you graciously sent your Son. And through his life and his death and his resurrection, we can be righteous in your sight. Thank you, God, that Jesus' shed blood made it possible for us to know you and serve you and enjoy you forever. So God, help us to be people of faith until Jesus returns. Help us to trust you to fulfill all of your promises to us. Help us to walk by faith and not by sight. In Jesus' great name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. 
Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Bethlehem Baptist Church. For more information, we invite you to visit us online at Bethlehem.Church or write us at 720 13th Avenue South, Minneapolis, Minnesota, 55415. Bethlehem Baptist Church, spreading a passion for the supremacy of God in all things, for the joy of all peoples, through Jesus Christ.